because 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 to 6 will be such a wonderful lead-in to speaking about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to preach that text next Lord's Day. And because of that, I want to cover 1 John chapter 3 verses 19 to 24 this morning. The book of 1 John is a great study in the matter of the Christian's assurance. This book could be a great encouragement to people in assuring them of their salvation, but of course could also be a stern warning to those professors whose lives are not signifying or reflecting a genuine relationship to the one Christ they profess. The Apostle John actually speaks to these two realities, these two truths here in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. Listen to it. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Now if you listened carefully to the Apostle John's words, you hear him speak to two ways we can enjoy the assurance of our relationship to the Lord Jesus, which can easily correspond to the two-point outline that I have for you this morning. Number one, reassuring our hearts through love, verses 19 through 21, and secondly, reassuring our hearts through obedience, verses 22 through 24. And I want you to notice how the beloved disciple John seeks to both encourage and to warn his readers with these two ways of reassuring our hearts. The first one, reassuring our hearts through love. Listen again to what he says in verses 19 to 21. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. You may be asking the question, how do these verses relate to the issue of the Christian's assurance through love? Well, look at that first phrase in the ESV text of this passage. By this we shall know. The words by this 
refer back to what John has just said in verse 18 and from the previous context. Look at it. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In verse 19, the by this, which John says we shall know that we are Christians, is our loving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in both deed and in truth. That's what the by this has reference to. By this love. By this love that we have in loving our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, linking these two contexts together, we can gain a needed assurance or reassurance that we have a genuine relationship with Christ because we love each other and we're committed to meeting our obvious needs. If you'll notice verse 17, it says, If we see our brother in need and we have the world's material goods at our disposal so as to meet that need, we will be compelled as genuine Christians to reach out and to seek to meet those very needs. We won't close our hearts against our brothers and sisters and thereby call into question our relationship to Jesus. As John says there, how does God's love abide in a person who closes his heart to the needs of those around them? In fact, when we seek to meet those needs, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to love these brothers and sisters in our local church, then we will be so confident of our Christianity that according to John here in verse 19, notice what he says, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. You know what he's saying? He's saying, do you want to know at least one way you truly belong to Christ? Here it is, by this love of your fellow saints. That's how you're going to know. Notice what he says, you shall know that you are ek teis aletheis, of the truth. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? If you love your brothers and sisters in Christ... John says, you'll know by this that you are of the truth. You're of the truth. It's a very unique way of putting it. And I think he may be stating it that way because do you remember what John said in verse 12 of this chapter? That Cain, who murdered his brother Abel, was, quote, of the evil one, unquote. Well, verse 19 says that those who love their brothers and sisters, who don't murder them, who don't hate them, being of the evil one, are actually those in that love who are of the truth. This is why, by the way, Jesus said to cynical Pilate in John 18.37 that everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. And when Jesus' voice is heard to love one another, to love those around you, and you do so, it is because you are of the truth that you love one another. And I guess that's why when he says in verse 18, 
that we are not just to love in word or tongue or talk, but in deed and in truth, we do that because we're of the truth. We love in truth because we are of the truth. That's what he means to say. One of the ways that you know you're a Christian, by the way, not the ground of your salvation, but certainly the gauge of it, one of the ways that you know that, one of the ways that you experience the assurance of that salvation is when you love your brothers and sisters who are in Jesus. Do you love those around you? That's an appropriate question. Do you love those around you in Jesus? Do you seek to meet their needs or do you close your heart against them? Notice also what John says here in verse 19. And, and here's a second way, a second way that you can be assured or reassured, and reassure our heart before Him. That's the second point of assurance for Christians that John makes in this passage. In addition to genuine genuinely loving others in the body of Christ, and that itself being a sign that we're of the truth. We are also, by loving the brethren, reassuring our own hearts before God that we are His children. Are you struggling with your assurance? The assurance, the certainty that you know Jesus? Well, check the manifestation of it. Check the gauge of it. Check the internality of it. Because if you love others as Jesus has commanded you, if you love your brothers and sisters in the body, it could actually bring you the knowledge, the incredible encouragement that you indeed are of the truth, of the truth that is in Jesus, of the truth of those who walk in love, not in word or talk, but in deed and truth, and it also works its work in you, that you are reassured in your own heart that you are walking with Jesus and that you know Jesus because you love these people like Jesus would want them to be loved. That's incredible assurance. Now, to be sure, there are some commentators that don't really think that's exactly what John is referring to here. Maybe they would quibble with the word reassure. And they would say that really what John is doing is rather attempting to convince or to persuade his readers not to shut their love out for fellow believers. It's not so much the sense of being reassured of your own heart standing before the Lord, but maybe it's the idea that you are in need of convincing by the Lord, you're in need of persuasion by the Lord, that you should not shut out your heart of love toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's not so much a reassurance, but it is a convincing or a persuasion that you ought to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. The reason they say that is because the Normal use of the Greek word, which the ESV translates as reassure, patho, would be to convince and to persuade. And it is true that that is vastly the normal translation of that word. So commentators, looking at that, 
would be saying, well, if it is to convince and persuade, then it's to convince and persuade you that you ought to love not in word or mouth or tongue or talk, but in deed and truth. And so sometimes you are not so convinced yourself that you are loving them as you ought, and you ought to be convinced, you ought to be persuaded to do that. And those who would see it as more of a persuasion or a convincing in this passage would say something like this, by this love of the brethren, we shall know that we are of the truth and shall persuade our hearts before the presence of God. For whenever our hearts condemn us because we haven't loved the brethren, God who knows everything is greater than our hearts and He will Himself attempt to convince or persuade us to love as we ought. That's the sense. In other words, God's own knowledge of our hearts, His omniscience, will then be a persuasion even beyond our own temptation to close out our sinful hearts against love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And God is greater than our own self-condemning hearts, our own sinful desire not to love them as we ought. And the Holy Spirit, in a sense, overrides the process and convinces us that we ought to love as Jesus loved. And that sounds very convincing. I just don't think that's exactly what John is driving toward here. I think he's in a context where he's talking to these believers in the church and he's attempting to give them a, an assurance, a reassurance, because remember, there are heretics in their midst, those who have gone out, and maybe even some who have not yet gone out, who are attempting, as these false teachers, to convince these people, these Christians, these bona fide believers, that they in fact do not have to love the brethren as John commands them to love as Jesus mandated that they love, or that this love is far different than the kind of love John is expressing. And because they're tempted to follow the other group, because they're being tempted to be swayed by this false teaching and therefore not have a real biblical Christian love for others in the body of Christ, and it sounds so alluring that they need a reassurance not just a convincing and a persuasion to love others. They want to love others, but they need to learn how to love others in the right way. And sometimes that's not always altogether easy or understandable, how to love others in the right way. And so in their attempt to love others, they need an assurance and a reassurance about their own hearts that they indeed are reaching out to those brothers and sisters in need and they do have the material goods at their disposal and they are attempting to meet those needs as they ought. And so it would be something like this, by this loving of our brothers and sisters, in deed and in truth, we are proving ourselves to be of the essence of the truth, the truth of Christianity, and we will give our own hearts by these actions a reassurance that before the very presence of God Himself, we are the true children of God. I think that's exactly what John means because even in this extended context, he's saying here are the children of the devil and here are the true children of God. And here's how the true children of God act and here are who the devil's people act like. Here are the differences. And one of those major differences is not just what you believe but how you love. 
By the way, it's also interesting to point out that the verbs in this verse are future tense, which means that John is in effect saying to them, look, you're going to come to a time of testing and maybe that testing is just around the corner and you're going to be tempted to believe that love isn't a sine qua non of the Christian life. It isn't the most important thing. It isn't the thing that you ought to be focusing on. It isn't the thing that you ought to be doing. You're going to be tempted to believe that. You're going to be tempted not to love others as you ought. And I'm telling you, There's going to come a time in the future when by this love of your fellow believers, by this love, you shall know and reassure your hearts before Him. It's going to come. Being tested, you will be tested. You shall know and shall reassure your hearts at that point that you are truly one of the Lord's own because you are indeed genuinely loving fellow Christians both in deed and truth. And so I suppose even for us in the 21st century, this is a real test, isn't it? It's a real test. If we close our hearts toward those believers around us, when we have the material means to minister to them, to help them, we actually, John says, give evidence that our hearts are cold to the things of the Lord and the love of God does not really abide in us. That's what he says in verse 17. Almost shockingly, John says, if you see your brother in need and you close your heart to him, how does the love of God abide in you? It's a fair question. But, he says, if we love the Christian community and we help to love them in deed and in truth, we prove that we are of the very essence of truth. And in the process, our own hearts are assured that we are in good standing before the very presence of God. Boy, that is a powerful encouragement. Powerful encouragement that you're in the kingdom because you're not self-centered. You're other-centered. You're looking for the needs of others around you. You want to minister to them. You, you know your needs will be met. Someone will come along in the body to meet your needs. What you're looking out for is for the meeting of the needs of others. Th- that's when you know that Satan and his rule and reign has been displaced in your life and that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the Savior and Lord of your life. Because you're thinking about Him and you're thinking about what He can do through you to others. What an encouragement such a thing like this really is. It's not just convincing and persuading you to love others. That's your very nature now. And yes, it is mitigated by your own sinful heart to be sure. But you want to love because the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit has come into your life and you want to love however faltering it happens. You want to love. You're, you're threatened by this false teaching. You're threatened by others. Even as these believers in John's day were threatened by the heretics to, to believe certain things and to do certain things which may put Christianity into question. And John tells them, and he tells us, 
that truly by loving others in the church, you shall know you are of the truth and you shall reassure your own hearts before the very presence of God. When you survey your own life, do you see this kind of love for others? Well, you can be reassured. Reassured right here this morning that you have a heart for God and that God's heart is living that life through you, that heart life of God Himself, so that you are able, you are desirous, you are willing, you are eager to reach out to others around you, which then helps in the very gauging of your own salvation. How are you doing in this area? How are you doing? Are you of the truth? And are you reassured of your own heart love for God based upon your heart of love for others? Now, if you're like me, you read a verse like 1 John 3.19 and you say, well, indeed I am a Christian. But I'm, I'm a little fearful at this point. I'm, I'm honestly struggling because I, I say I want to love and in some ways I do indeed love, but if I can gauge, not ground, but gauge the very assurance or reassurance of my salvation in Christ based upon my love for others, how much love is enough, right? I mean, I want to love I want to reach out to others. I want to use the material goods that I have to reach out and love them in Christ. And when I see that they have a need, I, I do genuinely desire to reach out to meet that need. But if I gauge the very assurance of my own salvation upon how much I love them, upon how successful my love is for them, how much is enough? And that's a, that's a tremendous question. It's a, Convicting question. I mean, if, if this is a gauge of my own relationship to God, do I love those around me to a sufficient degree that I shall know with certainty and shall adequately reassure my heart before God that I'm truly His? Well, that sounds like a lot of love for people. And I seem to fall so far short there. If that's the case, how can I possibly be encouraged by this passage. You say, be encouraged, and I'm not encouraged. I'm discouraged. Because I look at my life, and honestly, I, I, I want to love, and sometimes I do love, but how much love is enough? Well, be encouraged. Read on in verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, and you're saying, that's me, that's me, God is what? Greater than our heart. And He knows everything. Boy, that is so encouraging. I mean, if you struggle with assessing the genuineness of your relationship with the Lord, if indeed you know Him, you should be so encouraged by what John writes here. And what he's saying is that the final arbiter of whether or not you truly know the Lord is not your own condemning heart. Oh, that's so encouraging. What's the gauge? What's the, what's the arbiter? It's God who perfectly knows the human heart. Why? Because he knows everything. He's omniscient. He knows it all. 
And he can pierce with his laser, x-ray, omniscient eyes into the very deep recesses of the human soul, the soul that is condemning itself because you're not loving as you ought, even though you want to. And he looks right in there and looks right past my own self-condemnation and says, I know everything and I know that you know me. And what's more important is that I know you. Now that, my friends, is encouraging. Because there is a lot of self-condemnation. Do I love enough? Have I reached out enough? Have I given enough? I need assurance. I need reassurance. I love, but do I love enough? He can see this omniscient God right into your innermost thoughts in order to override your human condemnation and thereby give you the assurance that you know Him. Don't look inside. Look outside. Look up. Look to God. Now remember, this doesn't mean if according to verse 17 you so utterly and completely close your heart against another person's legitimate need that you're nevertheless a Christian. If you are totally closed out, if you have no love, if you're totally self-centered, if you're utterly preoccupied with a love for yourself, John can rightly say in verse 17, how does the love of God dwell in a person like that? But if you've met Jesus Christ and He has transformed your life, however it is on your particular spiritual journey, fits and stops, stops and goes, hills and valleys, ebbs and flows, you can know that if you love Jesus, you will love others because you will love your neighbor as yourself. And even when your own heart would tend to condemn you because they said, but I'm not loving enough. I'm not serving enough. I'm not meeting enough needs. I just don't know if I'm a Christian. How could I be if I'm not loving more and more and more? Where's the standard? How much? God knows everything. And He can see in the deep recesses of your soul. And He doesn't condemn you. Don't condemn yourself. Watch out for those who question the motives of fellow Christians. Somebody could come along and say, Yeah, but are you loving enough? And does that really give you the assurance of your salvation? And they question that. Be careful of that. In fact, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You ought to really, really see the wealth and the insight of this passage that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 4, 1. This is how one should regard us, that's Paul and his apostolic band, his associates, his colleagues, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And apparently there were those in Corinth who were seeing in them everything but that. And he was being attacked along with his colleagues. And in verse 2 he says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. And maybe some of them were saying, Yeah, but how, how trustworthy? How much trustworthiness is there in Paul and his associates? Notice what he says in verse 3. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. Watch out for judging the motives of others 
He said, verse 4, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. It's the same as John, in essence, different context, but is saying here, it is the Lord who examines your heart. You may condemn yourself, or you may not be conscious of anything against yourself, but it is the Lord who judges you. Verse 5, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who himself will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Watch out for judging the motives of others. Why? Because it's so very difficult even for us to judge the motives of ourselves. Be careful. Don't judge others' motives because you've got a full-time job attempting to assess your own motives. And just as the Lord will come when He comes and will adjudicate all of the final analysis, and I'm so glad Paul said in verse 5, and then each man's commendation will come to him from God. Just so in 1 John 3, you might be condemning of yourself because you don't just love enough, 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 and you are in self-condemnatory mode. And God who sees all things and knows all things will look inside the deep recesses of your soul and says, I don't condemn you. I'm giving you reassurance because I know everything. I know that you may not be doing all in the love category that you should, but I've been patient with you. I'm working with you. That's a great encouragement. In fact, look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. Whoever keeps His Word, you say, well, do I keep it enough? In Him, truly, the love of God is perfected. It's being matured. Don't fret. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Even in the keeping of His Word. If you are a Word keeper in Him, truly, the love of God is perfected. That's you By this we may know that we are in Him, but how much do I keep? Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Okay, here's love. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But how do I, how do I love another person to a sufficient degree that I know that this love is actually from God, that He's instilled it in me? Verse 8, anyone who does not love, that means His, his bowels of compassion, His heart of love, is not there at all. Anyone who does not love characteristically, habitually, does not know God. Why? Because God is love. In this, the love of God has or was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. That's the foundation. That's the basis. That's the ground of your loving God or anyone else. It's because God sent His only Son into the world. And this is love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the ground of our salvation. It's not the gauge of it, but it is the ground of it. And if so, if God loved us, verse 11, we also ought to love one another. But but how much, how deep, how wide, how extensive, how sufficient, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. There's a perfecting going on. There's a maturity occurring. 
Don't be discouraged at today. Don't relive yesterday. And don't even try to be concerned about tomorrow because tomorrow has what? Enough trouble of its own. Be concerned about today. And if you're not loving as you ought, if it doesn't appear to you that it's at a sufficient level, that you're not doing it enough, be encouraged that His love perfected in you at the cross is being ever more matured and perfected in your sanctification. Be encouraged. Verse 17 of 1 John 4, By this is love perfected with us so that we may have, what? Confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is so also are we in this world. You see all of these references to the perfecting of the love of God in us? There's no fear in love, verse 18, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. So be encouraged, my dear Christian friend. Be encouraged. And John writes in verse 19, by the way, that we shall know, gnosko, that we are Christians, even if at times, according to verse 20, our hearts may condemn us. Katagnosko. Wordplay. Oh, there may be times when you know, Gnosko, a deep and abiding knowledge, that experiential knowledge. And yes, there will also be times where you have that self-condemnation, Katagnosko, that you are tending to doubt yourself, doubt where you are, doubt your relationship with Christ, And it's never until glory going to be a perfect love, but that love is being perfected in us because it is God's love which is being perfected in our hearts and in our lives. Be encouraged. It's a perfecting process. Indeed, listen to Robert Yarbrough. He writes this, If the heart is weighed down with the conviction of wrongdoing, the place to turn is not farther inward, but outward and upward toward God. That's so good. Don't look inward. You may just find more self-condemnation. Look outward. Look upward. Look to God. And he quotes Gary Burge writing this, We do not look into our hearts to see if we feel secure and then use this as evidence of our sincerity. Listen to this. If our conscience condemns, God overrides the verdict. Oh, that's so encouraging. And if it weren't encouraging enough, listen to the climactic statement in verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we are loving as we ought. We're building toward it. We're gaining on it. We're loving as we should. We have what? Confidence before God. Confidence. Parousia. Confidence. Boldness. Even courage, fearlessness. Want to be fearless in your relationship to Jesus Christ? Well, do the works of love that you know you ought to do. And when you do them, not not sufficiently as you ought, but you're working toward that sufficiency and not perfectly, even though you know you ought, but you're working toward it. You're on the road. You're on the path. You're one of those people lovers. You're not a truth denier. You're not a people hater. You're not murdering people in your thoughts. 
You're wanting to love them, and yet you don't quite know exactly what is the sufficient degree so that you might look outward and upward to your relationship with God and be assured that you know Christ. He says, but if you are on the path and you're being perfected and you do it with a ready heart and a willing mind, you will come to a place that at some aspect or point in your Christian journey, that as you gain greater confidence at some point, even in your own life, your own heart won't habitually condemn or accuse you that you're not really loving as you ought. And when you have that, you have great confidence before God. Great confidence. He, he even speaks of this confidence in other contexts. Look at chapter 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence. Same word, parousia, and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. And I read another one a moment ago. Chapter 4, verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Chapter 5. Verse 14, and this is the confidence, parousia, that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. You want that boldness? You want that confidence? You want that assurance that you're loving Christ and loving others because of Christ? You want that sufficient degree of love, not necessarily a perfect degree, but a sufficient degree that's giving you confidence and boldness before the presence of an all-seeing, all-knowing God. And what great assurance that is. Are you struggling right now? Struggling to answer the question? Do I have that assurance? Well, what's the gauge of my assurance? Look at your love for others. How are you treating them? Do you possess that kind of assurance? Is it filled with confidence, fearlessness, boldness? Does your love for others give rise to a holy boldness and a fearlessness in your relationship to the Lord? According to John, it's possible. It's very possible. And we should be pursuing it. And we should have it. That's reassuring our hearts through love. But guess what? That's only part of it. Look at outline point number two, reassuring our hearts through obedience. Look at verses 22 through 24. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. You see, just as John teaches us in verses 19 to 21 that our assurance can be based upon our love for fellow believers, so also does He teach us here in verses 22 to 24 that it can be based upon our obedience. Notice how he does this. He implies that he will come, that is the believer, to God by prayer. Notice what he says. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. What do you think the believer is asking for? What's the context? 
He's asking for what? Assurance. Assurance. If you had a bunch of heretics trying to dissuade you from believing what you're believing and loving whom you're loving, and you were possibly bending toward that false teaching, you were possibly swayed by it, and you were thinking, well, is this love for others? Is that the sine qua non? Are we supposed to be involved to the degree that John is telling me? Well, that's not what they're saying. And are we supposed to believe what they say you're to believe? And it's against what John is saying. You must believe in the name of Jesus Christ, God's Son. And they say it's a different kind of Jesus that they're teaching. And I'm not sure if John's telling me the truth. And I'm swaying. I'm wavering. There's an assurance question there. And John says, you can be reassured through love and through obedience. And here's how you do it. Through prayer. Prayer. Whatever we ask of Him, we receive. So you ask for assurance, He gives it to you. He answers that prayer. He will. I mean, think about the fact that when a Christian is lacking assurance, what does he do? He goes to his heavenly Father and he asks for it. That's right. And, and what does his heavenly Father do in response? He grants it. He grants the assurance that I long for. How does he do it? Uh-oh. Here's another test. Here's another problem. Here's how he does it. Verse 22, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, notice this, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Oh dear, there we are again. I mean, I, I, I want to love. I, I want to love as much as I should love, but I don't always love as I ought. And sometimes that puts me in this self condemnatory mode, but God sort of crashes through with His laser beam eyes and He sees that I truly am a part of His kingdom and He motivates me to love and I gain assurance by it and I thought I had the thing wired. And then I'm not so sure again. The heretics are around. And I'm not so sure. And even my own heart seems to question the realities of what I'm being taught. And what do I do? I go to my Heavenly Father, just like anybody would. I go to my Father and I say, give me the assurance that I crave. Uh, tell me that they're wrong and tell me that, that John is right. And the Lord says, I will. You pray to me. By the way, this is the first time in First John that prayer is explicitly mentioned. It's implicitly, of course, tied into First John 1.9. If we confess our sins, obviously confessing our sins to God, that's a form of a prayer, but that's implicit. This is the first explicit mention in 1 John about prayer, and what is the person praying for? Assurance. Whatever we ask, uh, whatever kind of assurance that we need, we ask and we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Oh, oh but there we are again. I Commandment keeping and, and pleasing God, I... I don't know if I do that enough. I don't, I don't know if I do that well. I, oh, 
He says this is the ground for answered prayer. Keeping the Lord's commandments, doing what pleases Him. And please, parenthetical thought. Don't believe the name it and claim it crowd. Who often say, well see, here it is. Whatever we ask, we receive. Just claim it. Just name it. The promise is there. You got it. Need a new car? Name it. Claim it. Need a healing? Name it. Claim it. I always think about them when I read verses like this because apparently their Bible stops at whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Yes, it most definitely says, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. But folks like those in the name it and claim it crowd don't read on because notice what it says. Whatever we ask of God, we receive because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Sometimes they ask for things that don't please Him. And what's the answer going to be? No, you're not going to get that. You're not going to receive that because it's against my will. It's against my purposes. And you know that virtually every time this kind of phraseology is, is used, whatever we ask, it's always conditioned upon the name of God. That means all that He is and all of His will and all of His character. It's always conditioned on that. Or it's conditioned on uh, whatever you ask in my or according to my will. It's always conditioned upon that. In fact, look in your Bibles at the Gospel of John. Jesus Himself modeled this for us. John 14. This is, this is how it baffles me that this escapes the name it and claim it crowd. John 14. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in My name, John 14, 13, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. And they say, there you go. There it is. If you ask anything, what does it say? How does it qualify it? In My name, according to who I am, according to My character, according to My rules, according to My laws, according to My principles. Look at chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, speaking to the disciples, does Jesus, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide or remain, so that whatever you ask the Father, what is it? In my name, he may give it to you. Look at chapter 16, verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father, in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your, on your behalf. Even in 1 John chapter 5 verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything, here it is, according to His will, He hears us. It's always in my name, according to my will. Don't... Believe the heretics who say, just name it and claim it. Well, somebody says, all right, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. What commandments? What commandments? Well, remember the context. Look at verse 23. He tells us specifically what those commandments are. And this is His commandment, singular 
that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Well, that's plural. Guess what? That's the great command, the great commandment. There are two aspects of it. Believing in Christ and loving one another. You know what he's saying? Here's the way that God will answer your prayer for the request of assurance in your life. It's twofold. My theology, I believe in the name of Jesus Christ, His Son, and my practice, loving one another. That's it. Those are the commandments that God will give you. My theology, that is, what I believe about the identity and the person of God's Son, Jesus the Christ, and my ethical practice, that is, what is my love relationship to fellow believers. You see, if you want to boil it down to the essence of Christianity, John says you can boil it down to this, my orthodoxy and my orthopraxy. What I believe and how I love It's my theological belief of who Jesus really is, actually is, and it is my ethical treatment of fellow believers. And John says, just as he, we assume he means Jesus, commanded us. You say, well, where did Jesus command this? Where did Jesus command this idea of believing in him and loving one another? Where is this command? Very easy, Matthew 22. Very easy. Very easy to point this out. Matthew 22. This is what Jesus commanded. This is what He says. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that He'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Him a question to test Him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Later, merged into one, love God, love others. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, that's the love. That's the love that he's talking about, the practical love. You say, well, where's the believing? Where's the obedience? Where's the the reassurance through obedience? Look at verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? That's doctrine. That's theology. He's asking them, who do you think I am? What do you believe about me? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, calling Jesus Lord, how is he his son? You know, the only plausible explanation for that is that Jesus is saying, how is it that David calls me his son when I'm his Lord? How's that? You know what he's doing? He's challenging them to think about who Christ really is. And he's telling them, I am David's Lord. Yes, I'm his son by human parentage, but I am Lord. You have to believe that I, Jesus, am Lord. And you have to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's love and obedience. There it is. Same thing in... Mark chapter 12, same two positionings, love God, love others, and believe in the name of Jesus, God's Son, 
love, and obedience. And notice what he says to encourage Christians in verse 24 of 1 John 3. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. That's, that's an assurance verse. There he is again. Through your obedience, through your keeping of the commandments, abiding in God, God abiding in you. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and if you love one another, this constitutes the very keeping of the commandments of Christ, which thus proves the reality of your abiding in God and Christ. Again, how can you perceive that you abide in Christ? Just as John taught you it's through love, verses 19 to 21, it's also through obedience, verses 22 through 24. And remember, please don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about the ground of your relationship to Christ, but it is nevertheless the gauge of it. It isn't the foundational substance of your salvation, but it is the outward sign of it. Love and obedience aren't the merits which bring you your justification, but they are, however, the manifestation that bring you your sanctification. It's not the ground, but it is the gauge. It isn't the substance, but it is the sign. Love and obedience, they aren't the merits, but it is the manifestation that the reality has occurred. Oh, and I love the way he ends this paragraph. He says, here's how I'm going to give you the assurance. Here's how it's going to come to you by the Spirit whom He has given us. Oh, that's so good. Unlike Old Testament saints, we have in the New Testament community, the Spirit of God resides with the church, is the gift of God whom Christ Himself bestows upon us so that we may abide in the Lord. How can you know you have assurance? How can you know that you're abiding in Christ? The Spirit whom God through Christ has given you. We love others. We obey God because of the power and the influence and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit whom He, God, in Christ has given us. You experience this power, this influence, this leadership, just a part of your life. Oh, if you encouragingly receive the assurance of your great salvation, it's because of the Holy Spirit. It's because He's operative in your life. He's active in your life. He's empowering your life. He's the one who is energizing you to love. He's the one who caused you to believe in the name of Jesus, His Son, Jesus the Christ, in the name of all that Jesus is, against the theology of the heretics. Oh, I ask you, as we close this morning, do you love and obey God? If you do, the very ground of it is because you have salvation in God through the person of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we can, as Christians, fret so much. We can worry 
and be so concerned about the assurance of our relationship to You, it seems at times so altogether fleeting. And therefore, Lord, we need a passage like this this morning. Because when I ask myself the question, do you love and obey God? Do we love others and do we keep your commandments? Do we believe in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ? And are we loving one another? We say yes, but it doesn't seem so sufficient. It doesn't seem so clear. It doesn't seem so much enough. But we can be assured of our salvation in You, through Christ, by the power of the Spirit. And thus be given wonderful assurance that we do know You. And that we do love, however halting and however faltering that love is. And that we obey Your commandments to believe In Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer, and loving one another. That's the essence of who we are because we're of the truth and shall reassure our heart before Him. Lord, that's our desire. I pray that everyone here who is truly and genuinely a Christian would be encouraged to press on in love and obedience and be assured wonderfully by You, overruling even our, at times, self-condemnation, that we're not loving enough, we're not obeying enough. Father, I pray for those who aren't in need of assurance, they're in need of salvation. Who've checked on this test of their life and are acknowledging not the condemnation that I don't have assurance, but the condemnation that I don't know Christ. I pray for them that you would bring them to yourself, bring them to Christ your Son. Don't let them be swayed Don't let them waver at all of the heretical teachings about who Jesus really is. Allow them to know the true deity and humanity of Christ in His fullness so that they might rejoice with us and be assured themselves that salvation has visited them. We pray for all of these things through the matchless name of the assuring Christ, by His Spirit, because of His name. Amen.